I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. All right, we already watched the video of Doug, our senior pastor, uh, in case you're new here. Uh, wasn't able to be here, and we've been in the series One Month to Live for a few weeks now, and uh, when this happened, Doug came to me, and, and he said, do you have something uh, that you want to share? And so uh, he didn't really want me to continue on in this series, because he's pretty excited about uh, this next week that's coming up. It would have been today, and we were actually even filming something for it, so he's pretty excited about it, and of course he wanted to to be able to share that, and so uh, I, I get the opportunity to share what I had on my mind, and when I got asked what I wanted to to talk about, uh, one of my greatest, uh, or I, I should say my favorite book in the Bible is Philippians. We did a, a nine-week series, I think it was nine weeks, uh, at the beginning of the year uh, with the youth group on Philippians, and we went through it uh, pretty pretty strong. And so we spent a lot of time in that. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the second chapter of Philippians exegetically. You're like, what does exegetically mean? Well, I'm going to break that word down for you. Exegetically comes from the word exegesis, which basically means that uh, we're going to interpret or we're going to teach straight from the Bible. In other words, what second, the second chapter of Philippians says, that's the subject of today's sermon, as opposed to eisegesis, which is having a subject in mind and following, finding God's word to back that up. For example, faith, you know, and then going in and looking for verses that have to do with faith and, and doing a sermon on that. We're going to look at the second chapter of Philippians exegetically. And I know those are some big words and you don't have to worry about it. So let's, let's uh, dig in. Let's start out with uh, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, what kind of uh, encouragement would that be? That would be the encouragement that uh, through Christ, all of humanity can be saved. So it's a hope. If there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship 
of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says that his joy would be made complete if the church body in Philippi, that's what this, this whole book is. It's, it's a letter to the, to the church of Philippi, the Philippians. Um, his joy would be made complete if they were of the same mind, maintaining the same love, uh, being united in the same spirit and purpose. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to fill in kind of who this church of Philippi is. We're going to go from the beginning here a little bit, okay? If you were to look at Acts chapter 16, you're going to see the story really of how the church of Philippi came into existence. And there's this lady named Lydia. Lydia is a business lady that has done pretty well for herself. She's wealthy. She, uh, we're going to call her a fashionista because she sold fine purple linen and uh, she did really well. She actually has, what we know is that she had a church in Philippi and then an, I mean a, a house in Philippi and then a house uh, in modern day Turkey. And uh, so she's, she's done really well. And with that, she has a whole household of people and she has a lot of influence on uh, that household and a number of people. She's that great of a person. And so Paul uh, meets up with Lydia, and she is a follower of God, okay? So she's a good Jew. And uh, she hears Paul teaching, and she uh, is moved by the Spirit, and she actually gets baptized. And then in turn, her whole household gets baptized, and the people that she has influence over get baptized. And then so Paul leaves, and he's with his friend Silas, and they're walking down the road uh, after they leave Lydia. And they come across this little slave girl who is following them wherever they go. And it says for a few days, she's following them, and she is uh, proclaiming everywhere they go. Um, she's, she's proclaiming, these are men of God. Let's see, what is the, the right word here? Men who are servants of the Most High God. And she's telling people, they know the way to salvation. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, if when I go into the schools, like I go to Palestine High School to go eat lunch with uh, some of the youth, you know, if, if Sarah was following me around and saying, this is a servant of the Most High God. He knows the way to salvation. I mean, like, that's not bad, right? That's pretty good. I would like that, kind of. It'd be a little embarrassing. But what it says is that, that Paul became greatly annoyed. They became greatly annoyed. Why? Because the slave girl, what you don't know, is that she is a fortune teller. That is why she's a slave. She kind of has, uh, she has, uh, she's in the occult. And so it's not what she's saying, it's the mouth that's coming, <laughs> that it's coming out of. And so you can imagine a fortune teller coming around saying, if, you know, like I go into the school and, and Sarah's known to be like in the occult and a fortune teller and she's going, this is a man, you know, a servant of the most high God and he knows the way to salvation. Everyone would be like, okay, let's steer clear of him, right? Because it's kind of not a good thing coming from her mouth. Uh, but so they, they become greatly annoyed and I can just imagine Paul, you know, like just walking down the road and he's like, okay, stop, stop. Okay, please stop. And then it says that he casts the spirit out. And so obviously she becomes a follower of Christ 
at this point and uh, is no longer doing the fortune telling. Well, what happens is she's a slave girl, right? So she has owners. And those owners, like really they're pimps, are uh, you know pimping her out to uh, this fortune telling and they're making a lot of money off of her. Because she goes around and like, well, let me see your palm. I don't know how she does it, but you know, like you got that one line there. That means this. She's making money for them. And so uh, obviously they're out of a lot of money now because she doesn't have that ability anymore. She doesn't have that spirit. So they're going after Paul and Silas like, hey, you robbed us of some money, man. And so they go uh, and they get beat by rods. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about Paul and Silas says that they were beat by rods and put into an inner prison. And uh, Paul is amazing. If, I mean, this book alone tells you about some of the stuff that he's gone through. But this is the kind of guy Paul is. He's in prison. And you can imagine if the Bible says that he's being beat with a rod, he's, he's probably in a lot of pain. And it, it says that he's, they're put into stocks. And uh, there's a picture of, uh, of stocks I believe, Miriam, is there not? No? Okay, never mind. You think of a stock and you think of, you know, the hands in the, in the, the stocks in the neck, you know, that piece of wood, and they're just hanging there. And they're not, that's not actually how it was back then. The stocks were more of, uh, I'll give you more of a, a visual representation. Get in a weird position, you know, and like kink your neck up. And they would make you hold that and they would hold you on the, that weird thing. This the sort of thing like you hold it for 30 seconds and you get a kink in your neck and you're like, ow, that hurts. That's the kind of stocks. It was more, it wasn't just this. It was all weird positions. And, I, you know, I make that up. I don't know if that's exactly how it was, but, you know, like awkward, uncomfortable positions. And this is what they put Paul and Silas in. And... This is why Paul's amazing. It says that they are praying and that they're singing hymns. And so while all this is going on, Paul never lets up. He, you know, later on it says in, the, in, in Philippians, it says to live as Christ, to die as gain. It was just in that little video. He's actually living for Christ at every moment that he has breath. And that's pretty awesome. So uh, what happens is, you know, it's, this is going on and it says that there's this great earthquake and the doors of the prison open up and that their bonds fall off of them. And so uh, it says that the prison guard wakes up and he knows, oh no, like I'm going to get it for this. All these prisoners are gone. I'm going to, uh, they're going to kill me because of what's happened. And so it says that he's taken a sword and then Paul speaks up and he's like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. I, we never left. And so the prison guard sees this. He sees like how these guys are worshiping God in this misery, in this pain. And then he sees that he cares enough, that they're honest enough, that they never even leave the prison. They stay there because they care more about the prison guard's life than they do their own. And he says, what can I do to be saved? So now you've got three people. You've got Lydia, the fashionista. You've got the slave fortune-telling girl. And you have a blue-collar prison guard that make up the first people in the church of Philippi. That's who we're talking about. So when we go back and we look at that verse and it says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's looking at that and he's, he's saying, 
you three people, basically, and there's more people by this time, you're from different places. The fashionista lady, Lydia, is rich. Slave girl is poor. And then you have the, the blue-collar uh, prison guard guy that, you know, comes home after a long day of work, grabs a beer, and sits on the couch. Three different, you know, three different places in life, three different towns that they're from, and this is what makes up. And so you can see it makes him, his joy complete to have them all in unity. Uh, and it, this goes, this, this is our church. We're all from different ways, uh, been from different places. We've, uh, we've all got different income levels. This is the body of Christ, okay? Uh, all right, let's move on here. Let's continue on verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. What does this mean? It's a jealousy, a mindset that you have to beat other people at things. Um, make more money, be better at, at golf, basketball, whatever it is. Uh, maybe taking joy in other people's problems or their pain um, because it puts you on top. Even watching sports and hoping that uh, a member of the opposite team uh, that you like to watch gets hurt, you know, that the quarterback gets hurt or something in football season and gets sacked and, and hurt and you're like, yes, because it puts your team over an advantage. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. We should not live in such a way that our uh, that we act in rivalry with each other or conceit or jealousy of one another. We should not live like we're worthy of our own situation in life. God gave you everything. You're not worthy of it. But rather be in constant attitude of putting others before yourselves, thinking of others as more important than yourself. What does this even look like? It means people's interests are more important than yours. Let's look at, uh, at Luke chapter 1. And even though we're in chapter 1, I'm going to give you a little background to this as well. Um, so this angel appears to this lady named Elizabeth and tells her that she's going to have a baby. Now, Elizabeth is old. She's too old to be having a baby, and that's disgusting. So, uh, you know, this is, this is who Elizabeth is. Uh, she's going to have a special baby. And then there's this angel and appears to Mary. And we all know who Mary is. And she shouldn't be having a baby because she's never had sex. And so, uh, you know, she shouldn't be having a baby. It's virtually impossible. And what we're about to read is the communication between these two legendary women in the Bible. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? How cool is that? That the baby inside of Mary's womb, I mean Elizabeth's womb, leaped when when she heard Mary's greeting. It's like, that's, that's pretty crazy. You know, and, and it's like, wow. And then she says to, uh, to Mary, 
she's calling the, the baby in Mary's womb, Lord. That's crazy. You don't even know, you know, like the baby, you, you can't see the baby, nothing. And she's calling him Lord. That's pretty cool. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, what's really cool about this is God uses people at different times in our life to fulfill his will. And in this little part, uh, we see an, an older lady and a younger lady and Together, they're fulfilling God's will. And so two different times in their life, you know, I mean, they're, you can imagine as you get older, you're not like that little teenage girl anymore. And so Mary said, and this is verse 46, and this is a, a song uh, that uh, Mary's about to, to go through. <coughs> Pardon me. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Hold on to that word fear. Have you ever been to a petting zoo? What kind of animals do they put in petting zoos? Kind of safe animals. Animals that you can pet, right? They don't put animals in there that are going to bite you or kick the mess out of you normally, right? They're going to put pretty safe animals in there. <laughs> yeah, horses. You might be a, a little timid going into a petting zoo and uh, petting some of those animals, but they're pretty safe. And uh, when I was a police officer, I, uh, one of my jobs, I was on a special team, and we would go to Bastrop, which is outside of Austin, and they had an animal care facility out there that's kind of secretive. Now you know about it. So, and they had uh, they had a lot of primates there, and they had chimps. And man, I like chimpanzees. I'm like enthused by chimpanzees. And when we think of chimpanzees, we we generally think of this sort of uh, this sort of picture right here. You know these these cute little chimps that uh, are, are young and they're playful and they smile and they're real human like and. Uh, they're, they're pretty cool. Um, but chimps, when they get a little bit older, after maybe the age of three or so, they're pretty smart. They're pretty human-like. And they get pretty big. And they don't look like this little chimp anymore. They actually look more like this. Uh, and they're, they're big. I'm talking, you know, maybe five feet tall. And they're very, very strong. And they would love the opportunity to rip your arm off because they don't like captivity. They're like, why are you keeping me in here? You know, and they literally think that like, why are you keeping in here? And why are you looking at me? And so while I was, I'm enthused by these chimps. And so I would, when I was there, I was usually guarding in the middle of the night and they would be inside sleeping, but they could come out whenever they woke up and get into their little play area and there was this uh, this building that you could walk along the roof, and on both sides was an open area of chimps in their kind of areas. It's it's almost like a an, a figure eight, you know, with a building in the middle and these these pods of circles going down line. And it's big, you know, I'm probably about as big as this room, and like a big tree in the middle. 
that they could climb up and all kinds of tires and stuff to play with and stuff like that. And I would, I would, you know, get up there and I would watch them and they would, uh, they would look at you and like, why are you looking at me? Sort of look. And then they would try to throw poop at you. And uh, I, I kid you not, this one morning, I, it was early morning, five o'clock probably or so. And this chimp gets up and he's stinting in the tree and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's kind of like, why are you looking at me? And then he decides a little something like this. And he shows me like, look what I got. And then he does this number. He's like, he's trying to fake me out. Like they're smart, you know, and he's like, and then he lets it fly. And I'm like, whoa, I wasn't expecting it because I thought he was just faking me out. Uh, and he didn't hit me, but you don't want to get close to those cages. Now, uh, I went around with a doctor into a separate area where there were some chimps in some smaller cages, more of like, uh, you think of like maybe a jail cell size. And, uh, I, I, I got to go in here with this doctor and they, the doctor knows this female chimp, kind of a little older chimp and a little bit, you know, not as aggressive. And I got to get as close to that chimpanzee that I was able to touch her hand. And the thing about that is, is, uh, you don't want to show your teeth, you know, so you can't smile and be like, Oh, wow. You know, because then it's an act of aggression. Keep your hands down and you go slowly and, um, just don't show any sort of aggression at all. And I'm scared to death because I know uh, that chimp could, as I'm going to reach her hand, touch her hand, that she could grab me and there's no way I'm getting free. Uh, they are like super, super, super strong. They, she could just pull me in and then eat my face. And that's what they do. I don't know if you've, you know, heard stories in, on the news or, you know, watched a 2020 or something where a lady got her face bitten off and it's scary stuff. You fear, you have this healthy fear for these animals. Even the doctor does. Very, very careful. Um, you, it's scary. But uh, that's the sort of awe that we should have for God. God says that he has mercy for those who fear him, who revere him in awe. You know God could rip your arms off at any time. But yet you have this innate desire to want to be close to him. You, you fear him because you know that he's bigger than you and that he created all things. And so you have this awe of God and you just want to be close to him like you do that chimp. Like I wanted to be close. I wanted her to trust me. You know, like I, I can, you know, I'm nice. You know, I'm not going to hurt you sort of thing. You can hurt me easily. Don't hurt me. You know, like it's a fear. And that's the same thing with God. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know that this is uh, originally written in the Greek language. And uh, the Greek word for thoughts in this verse is actually imagination. So it literally says he has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Nothing is scarier to me than being lost in my own imagination. And uh, as I did with the youth, uh, and most of them are too young to even know this movie, but uh, 2001, uh, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe was a story, a true story about this uh, brilliant professor at MIT. And he, through the movie, 
uh, ends up accepting, because he's so smart, uh, a job from the government that's secret, and he uh, translates codes in Russian. And uh, that's what he does in the movie. And it shows him in his life, even going to college and having this roommate and this best friend for over 30 years. And uh, you find out at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, I know this is a spoiler if you haven't seen it. It's a good movie either. Anyway, uh, you find out that it's not real. He really is a professor. He is brilliant, but he's schizophrenic. And the roommate and his best friend that he's had for over 30 years, and you see him throughout the movie, uh, being his friend, never even existed. It's all in his mind. The job from the government is all in his mind. And they're trying to tell him at the end of the movie, he doesn't exist. This job that you think you've been doing never existed. They're all made up people in your mind. Can you imagine being told that half of your life is a, is a lie? that never even existed and you're going on through life thinking that, that's, that's lost in your imagination. And that's a scary thought to me. Uh, so when I think of this verse and it's saying that he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, that scares me deeply. And I don't want to be scattered in my own imagination. Uh, I've got a crazy mind. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Have you ever noticed that God generally, I can think of, of an example that this isn't true, but God generally esteems uh, those that are, he doesn't esteem those that are already large in nature. Like he uses uh, small, no-named nobodies to accomplish his will. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Nathan, prophet Nathan goes to Jesse's house. Jesse is the father of, of David. And Jesse's going, or I mean, Nathan's going there to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse lines up his, his sons and they're strapping, they're great soldiers, they're, they're great hunters, and they're beefy hunks of men, and they're, you know, burly. And Nathan's looking at him and he's going, looks at Jesse and he's like, uh, is this all you have? Now, to be the king, generally you were the one that led the armies. You were big. You were a great soldier. That's what a king was. And Nathan's like, don't you have another son? And he's like, well, let's see, one, two, three. Uh, well, uh, actually, I do have another son. Do you, you remember when you were pulling in and uh, there's that little boy. He was playing the harp. Uh, that's my other son. But you don't want him. I mean, you want one of these these big, strong, uh, these men. And, uh, I mean, David, he plays the harp. You know, he, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> That's not what you're looking for. And Nathan actually takes him, he gets, Jesse brings him in, and, and Nathan anoints him to be the next king, a harp player. Moses, uh, God gets Moses to be his mouthpiece, says, Moses, I want you to be my mouthpiece. And Moses is like uh, a murderer. And Moses is a stutterer. And so Moses is like, I, I, I can't talk. God uses Moses to be his mouthpiece. Last verse uh, for Luke 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
These sort of verses make it sound like God's against uh, rich people, doesn't it? I mean, you got this verse and you have the one with the rich young ruler where uh, it comes up to Jesus and he's like, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and he says, well, uh, you're doing good, but you need to go and sell all your possessions and uh, give it to the poor and then come back and see me. And uh, he's like, like, you know, like, what, would we have to be poor to be a follower of, of Jesus? Do we have to be a, a poor? Do we have to be poor? To, uh, to be a real follower of, of God. And that it really makes it seem like God's against people that are blessed financially. But not so much. In this verse, it's believed that God is not against the people that are wealthy, but rather the people that think that they're better than other people. The ones that are, the, for a better lack of a better word, lack of a better word, entitled, snobby, with their noses turned up. People that think that they deserve better. The reason the rich are sent away empty is because they're constantly trying to find the fulfillment in other things, in their own riches. You get me? The things that they have control over. They have control over. They won't find fulfillment in these things. They'll constantly be trying to achieve the next level, a better place, a better thing, a better way to be looked at. And there's so much more to this. Let's look at uh, Proverbs real quick. It's not going to be on your screen. Uh, Proverbs 6 16 through 17. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Abomination, that's a big word. Haughty eyes. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance. The way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination. To the Lord, be assured, he will not go unpunished. And last, James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. He opposes them. I'm against you. But the humble, I'm for. Humble and lowly, meek and opposite of proud. Those are the things that God's going to continue to address in our lives. What are we going to do with those blessings? Are you in it for yourself? Are you going to fulfill your own desires? Are you going to go after God with reckless abandon? Let's go back to Philippians where we've started out in this whole uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let's go back to verse 3. It says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And this is exactly the point that we're getting at. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Holy goodness. Jesus himself, who is God, he is God, did not count himself equal with God in his own mind. And here we have uh, Jesus, who is God, setting the example for humility. He is God, and yet he doesn't even allow himself to even grasp hold of the idea that he's equal. That's crazy pants to me. That's what I'd tell my son. Crazy pants. We'll continue on. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most humiliating form of punishment there could ever be is to lay, or not lay, but to hang naked on a cross in front of a whole town and everybody jeering at you, spitting on you, making fun of you. That's humiliating. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want to point something out here that's not even in my notes. It says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What does that tell me? That's a promise. Every one of us, every one of us, outside of the church, when you think of uh, maybe some African people that have never even heard the name of Jesus, the Bible says, and this is the very breath of God, this Bible is God's word. If there's something false in the Bible, then God is not God. Anything that's written in here is the truth, and it's a promise that we can hold on to. And so knowing that, it says that every knee will bow. Every one of us is at one point going to sit before Jesus on our knees. And every one of them, every one of us is going to go, Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you want to believe it or not right now, or your friends or your family, one day that's going to happen. So let's go on. Check this out. Jesus was there at creation, right? By his breath, the world was created. He has a a part in sustaining life since creation. And he gets arrested by men who have life because Jesus gave them life. The men use their muscles that he sustained to force him under arrest. The spit that comes from their mouth comes from God's word, Jesus' word. And uh, the metal nail that nailed Jesus to the cross comes from Jesus' word, his spoken word for creation. The cross comes from a tree that has life because of Jesus. He created these things that the people used to nail him to a cross. He literally laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. He laid it down. If you remember uh, when Jesus was arrested and, and Peter gets angry and he cuts the Roman soldier's ear off and Jesus picks it up and he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm laying down my life. Do you not get that, Peter? They're not taking it from me. And he puts the ear back on the guy. He said, I'm laying down my life. I'm choosing to lay down my life. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. This isn't natural. 
Natural isn't looking out. Natural is looking out for yourself. And this verse that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is all about growing in humility in Christ's likeness. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling. Because if it's not about you, why would you grumble? Or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's us, the church. We're going to shine as lights, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Starting in verse 17, he's going to give us three examples, and this is for your listening guide, of humble Christ-like living. Verse 17 says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, this is Paul, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. Paul is the first example of humility. He says, Even if I'm kept in prison, beaten, put to death, over and over and over again, I'm okay with it. I'm cool with that. As long as the direct result causes your faith and salvation in Christ. Go ahead, beat me. Go ahead, kill me. But if it's going to make your faith grow, I'm in it. I'm all for it. Sounds like putting others before himself, doesn't it? Paul sacrificed his body for others' faith and salvation. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Timothy's causing Paul to be happy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Number two, Timothy is the second example of humbleness. Timothy puts others above himself. He's willing to leave his father in the faith, who's Paul, and go to the church in Philippi because of his genuine concern for their faith. So Timothy has a deep love for both other people and for Christ himself. Verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paphroditus is the third example. He puts his own life, his own life is second to the encouragement of Paul and the welfare of the church of Philippi. He put his own life at risk for these two things. Paphroditus risked his life for the encouragement and the welfare of the church. I think we could all learn from these three men about humility. And Paul amazes me in this book. And uh, you can see that, I mean, this is just one chapter of Philippians, just how deep his love goes for this church. 
It actually says in the beginning that he has a deep affection for this church. And he doesn't say that about the other churches, just the church of Philippi. Early this year, I, I told you we, we did a, a nine-week study on, on, this, on this book alone. And you can see I kind of took two of, of those weeks and put them together and actually had to cut out some stuff uh, just for, for this today, just so that we could cover at least one chapter and not be kind of in the middle. And uh, as we leave today, I, I just want you to be mindful um, of Paul's words and the, the very breath of God's words written down and that was studied today. Like I said, it's, it's all truth. His word is truth. It's the very breath of God. Let's remember to put ourselves uh, below other people. Take other people's interests and put them above ourselves. Uh, young men, you better not let your mothers open up their own doors today. And older men, don't let football be over your wife's interest today. Ladies, you're off the hook. You can put that around and, and put his interest in football, whatever you want to do. Just, just talking to the guys. Just a suggestion. Um, let's, uh, Let's pray, shall we? Uh, God, you've given us this, this great example of humility in, uh, in this one chapter of Philippians. You showed us through your son Jesus' humility and Christ-likeness that we're supposed to display as Christians, as Christ's followers. You've shown us Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus who have just displayed this for us as an example. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, about being blessed for these things. God, those are promises to us. Whether we want to accept stuff from you or not, we're not doing it. For the blessing, we're doing it because you're worthy. And we want to follow after you with our whole hearts. Be with us today as, as we depart. And God, thank you for those blessings in our life that's going to continue, uh, continue on. In the name of Jesus, amen. Take your registration cards out and uh, fill them out. And on the back, we always have you write something down. And uh, so leave uh, prayer requests if you have any on the back there. And if you have a praise report, that's always awesome uh, to, uh, to get as well. And I've got a praise report I'll tell you about here in a second. Because um, we like to rejoice over those things. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down the answer to this question. <coughs> Paul risked his body his livelihood, and his life for others. In all honesty, could you make the same commitments right now? Could you risk your body, your livelihood, and your life the way that Paul does?